So um, recently I've been reading, uh, spending more time in Acts and just um, enjoying just the power of the Lord moving, uh, moving among saints like you and me. Uh, when you start reading the Gospels and reading the, 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 so the New Testament and realize it's you and me that has been written to, that we can place ourselves in the story and just connect with the story one and one. It's not them out there. It's us written to one and one. It becomes a lot more interesting and a lot more revealing and, and in some places quite weird as well. Um, I think especially for us who have been around for a while and been reading the scriptures again and again, some of the nuances of the scripture get lost in us or we glance over it or we just, oh, well, that's what happened. But some of it is just, let's just call it bonkers. It's just weird. It's absurd. If you were making a Hollywood movie or writing a fiction novel, you read some of this stuff and people are going to go, that's just not beyond belief. That's too far-fetched. That's not in the realm of reasonable. Uh, let's jot those things out. Um, I mean, some of those things. Uh, my favorite one starting off with a donkey talking to correct somebody. What was God up to there? A, using a donkey to correct somebody. Um, other fascinating ones would be like Jonah and the fish. Yeah, really? Uh, are we really going to go there? At Noah and the ark and the flood. Global flood. Saving a family in a boat. <laughs> Uh, how about the Tower of Babel? All people together building one tower and then in an instant starting to speak different languages. Have you been in the story? Have you been there? Have you put yourself in that situation where all of a sudden you can't speak to your brother or your mom or your friend? That, I mean, come on, that's just weird. Um, how about King Saul? You know, when he got anointed... Uh, the Spirit came upon him, and as he was walking, he met a couple of prophets, and he just starts prophesying as he was there. Later in his life, he ch chases David, and he sends messengers, and as the messengers get to capture David, they start prophesying all the way back home. And it happens three times. People coming to capture David, and they start prophesying all the way back home. Then King Saul himself comes to try and capture David, and then he starts prophesying. Let, let me read this one to you. 1 Samuel 19, 23. Do we have that one, Ulrich? No. And he went there to Naroth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went to prophesy, he prophesied until he came to Naroth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all day and all night. This it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Can you imagine the king arriving somewhere to capture somebody and being so overwhelmed by the Spirit of the Lord that he starts prophesying 24 hours, taking off his clothes? Side note there, I believe that's the outer garments, the arm and all that type of stuff. I don't think he was buck naked. But anyway, that's scripture for you. It's weird stuff. Um, uh, uh, Gideon having to save the nation with 300 men. These aren't the stories of Braveheart and things like that. These are way beyond disbelief. They say the truth is stranger than fiction. Well, if you read the Bible, it is. It is stranger than fiction, but it's still the truth. In the same way, when you start reading Acts from that light, 
things really get interesting. So I want to read Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit came down upon us. But I would like you to do the following. I would like you to close your eyes. I would like you to place yourself in the story. I don't know where you are in the story, but I want you to imagine that you're actually there when these events happen. I want you to experience it as if it is your first time. Many of us have heard the story, but try and experience it for the first time when you actually don't know what is going on, when explanations aren't available to you. Let me read it for us. This is from Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under the sun and heaven. And the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are, they, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elements and residents of Macedonia, Judea and Capernaum, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Syrian and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. What a weird story. <laughs> if you're in the crowd, are you bewildered? Are you perplexed? Are you maybe the one mocking, seeing people making noises at nine in the morning? If that was today, would we also be saying they are drunk? They are noisy. They are a nuisance. What if you're in that room yourself? Are you standing in disbelief? Are you jumping up and down in glory and joy? It is beyond belief. But that was the start of the New Testament church. That is the start of what we as a church aspire to become, to, be, to learn from and to engage with how God intended the church to be. It is beyond belief. And depending on where we come from and how we've, our own experiences are, we will interact with that story in different ways. We'll be one of those in the room or we'll be one of those outside the room. We'll be acting in bewilderment or in judgment. We'll be acting with excitement or concern. We all have different in interactions with that story. There's another story very similar to this one, maybe a little bit closer to home. Again, Try and imagine yourself in the story. Some of you will know this very well. This is the story of Andrew Murray back in 1860 in Brewster when a revival broke out in his local church. And I'm going to read to you an eyewitness account 
of someone who was in the room when it happened. Let's catch up halfway through the story. Just for context, Andrew Murray was a, a minister, Dutch Reform minister in Worcester. He just organized the conference, 300 of the leading religious leaders in that time. They couldn't join each other on YouTube or Facebook. They had to actually go to Worcester and do the conference there. And on that same night, in the youth hall next door, the youth were having a meeting. 60, 60 people were having a meeting there. And Andrew Murray himself had seen revival in Scotland. He'd experienced God moving in some way. And he'd been praying, praying determinately for years that God would move in South Africa and in his congregation amongst his people. So let's pick up the story from the eyewitness that's in the hall at the moment. His name is, let me just get that right, J.C. De Vries. I love that Dutch name. All right. At that time, Reverend A. Murray was ministering a minister of Worcester. He had preached that evening in the English language in the hall next door. When the service was over, an elder passed the door of the hall, that's the youth hall, heard the noise, peeped in, and then hastened to call the Mr. Murray, returning presently with him. Mr. Murray came forward to the table where I knelt, that is J.C. de Vries, touched me and made me understand that he wanted me to rise. He then asked me what was happening and related everything to him. On this Sunday evening, we had gathered in the little hall some 60 people. I was the leader and I commenced the meeting with hymns and lessons from God's word. I wish I engaged in prayer. After three or four others had also done the same, a little colored girl asked, can I also pray? She rose and started praying. She gave out her hymn verse and prayed in moving tones. While she was praying, we heard as it were a sound in the distance, which came nearer and nearer until the hall seemed to be shaking. And with one or two exceptions, the whole meeting began to pray the majority in audible voice, but some in whispers. Nevertheless, the noise we made by the concourse was deafening, a feeling that which I cannot describe took possession of me. This is how Mr. Murray responded. He then walked down the hall for some distance and called out as loudly as he could, people, silence. But the praying continued. In the meantime, I took two knelt down again. It seemed to me that if the Lord was coming to bless us, I should not be upon me, my feet, but on, on my knees. Mr. Murray then called out aloud, People, I am your minister, sent from God. Silence! <laughs> but there was no stopping the noise. No one heard him, but all continued praying and calling on God for mercy and pardon. Mr. Murray then returned to me, and told me to start a hymn, verse commencing. Take note of the title. Aid the soul that helpless cries. <laughs> I did so, but the emotions were not quite quietened, and the meeting went on praying. Mr. Murray then prepared to depart, saying, God is a God of order, and here everything is confusion. With that, he left the hall. We can all get confused by when God moves in different ways, and we can all misinterpret what God does. But in some form or fashion, we've got to let God let God be God. So let's explore together what the Holy Spirit does and can do amongst us and how it can appear. 
And the reason why we need to do that is because depending on our own frame of reference, what we believe or expect or understand, we will either put limits on what God does or exceed what God does. We can be a blocker or running ahead beyond what God has designed for us. So it's important that we have a healthy response and understanding of what the Spirit does or can do. So let's look at some extremes. This is what happened to Ari Murray. Sorry, let me just explain that again. Depending on our own viewpoint, we might react in different circumstances. This revival continued in that week. Andrew Murray then had another meeting on a Saturday night where he himself was leading it and starting up the prayer. Within a very short period of time, again, the chaos broke out and people were praying, repenting, glorifying God, but the noise was audible. I, that noise concept I see throughout the whole scriptures. It was audible. And people, Murray was again starting to stop it and demanding that we have some order. Luckily, there was another person there. And he was a visitor from out of town. He had actually been in America. And this is what he said to Mr. Murray at the time. Um, Murray gently said to me, I think you are the minister of the congregation. Be careful what you do, for it is the Spirit of God that is at work here. I've just come from America, and this is precisely what I witnessed there. This gentleman had experienced something differently in America. And because of his viewpoint, he was able to help Mr. Murray or Andrew Murray into seeing what God was doing. Without him, Andrew Murray's main purpose was to try and stop and block what God's doing. His experience is not unique, though. We don't have to look far in Scripture to see similar experiences. If we want, we can look at our favorite, Peter. Can I have Matthew 16 up on the board, please? So yes, Peter, walking many, many miles with Jesus. And at one occasion, Jesus is uh, explaining what's going to happen to him. And Jesus is going to die on the cross and be crucified and rise and rise. This is Peter's response, starting from verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, that's him, rebuking Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not sitting, setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There's wonderful Peter with all his best intentions, misinterpreting what God is doing and actually actively trying to stop God from doing it. Again, Peter, another option. John 13, three, 6 to 8. Jesus is busy washing the disciples' feet feet just before the Passover meal. And he comes to Simon Peter, and he says, and, and as he's washing, Simon Peter responds to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Now to Peter, that should be a clue. You don't understand what's going on, but you will understand eventually. Verse 8, Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answers him, I do, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share in me. It's so easy to miss what Jesus is doing because of our understanding. Peter saw Jesus as the Lord, not as a servant. 
He saw Jesus as the conqueror, not the one dying on the cross. His theology prevented him from seeing what Jesus was doing. And can't we say the same for the Pharisees? Their own theology, as devoted as they were, prevented them from seeing what Jesus was doing in their time. And then there was a wise Pharisee that made this comment. Acts 5.39, we just see the Sanhedrin challenging the new disciples as the church is blossoming and bringing them in for discipline and telling them not to preach in the name of Jesus. But there was one Pharisee amongst them that had a little bit more wisdom and warned them not to. And he gave them reasons why. But this line I really like from verse 39. But if it is of God, you'll not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. I don't think he was far from the kingdom. If our theology is broken, we will resist the Lord and we will miss out on what he's calling us and what he's desiring for us, on his purposes. And we'll find ourselves sidelined and his heart for us will be missed because of our own broken theology or expectations. There's another extreme where we might not be resisting the Spirit, but we might be exceeding what God's asking. We might be so in love with the things of God, we forget to love God. Or we might, you even see it in some churches where the spiritual presence is so much glorified that it becomes sensationalized. And all they are after is the next sign, the next wonder, the next experience, the next spiritual high. But that too is taking it to extreme and is not glorifying God. Let's have a look for an example, biblical example of this. Acts 19, 13 to 17. So some Jews in the area had seen the miracles and the wonders being done by the apostles. And they'd seen the demons being driven out. And they'd seen the power of the Holy Spirit. And they wanted to get some of it for themselves. We pick up the story in verse 13. Then some of the Jews, Exodus, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord, Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priests named Shepherd were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them. Again, I love the humor. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Verse 16. And then the man in whom was the evil spirits leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this, and this became known to all residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear, of upon, and fear fell upon all of them, and the name of Jesus, and the name of Lord Jesus was extolled. Yeah, we see an example of people are going, I want some of that glory. I want some of that person. I want to look good. And how do we know if it was from the Lord? Who gets glorified? Very likely, they were trying to steal, take the glory themselves. Just as Moses made that mis fatal mistake, instead of speaking to the rock, he hit the rock, taking some of the glory that was intended for God upon himself. And Jesus does not take that lightly. Here's another example of someone wanting to take the glory for their own purposes and gains. Acts 8, verses 9 to 14, is a story of Simon, the magician in um, Samaria, who also saw the wonders and himself became to believe, even though he was a magician and had, was called great amongst the people. 
for the signs and wonders he was able to commit by his powers. But when he saw the true power of God, he became a believer. However, he also came twisted. He saw that Paul was laying, uh, Peter and John were laying on hands and people were receiving the Holy Spirit. And he wanted some of that as well. Let's pick up the story, verse in line 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in the matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray of the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart, key word there, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the goal of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may become upon me. The truth is that we have seen individuals practice that. We have seen individuals either on stage or in churches overemphasizing the Spirit to such a degree that you almost feel like it's a show or they become the person that gets the glory. It's about them, the new power for the hour, the prophet for the, for the nations or the priest or the healer of, of men. They get the glory. And the intent of their heart is not to bring glory to Jesus, but to bring glory to themselves. So we see two extremes. We see those who want to deny what God is doing because it doesn't fit in with their theology. Or they go to the other extreme and want to take the glory of what God is doing for themselves. Luckily, in all these things, the correct response is not to stop it completely, but to find the middle ground. With most things in the, the Bible, it's always truth intention. It's being able to balance both sides of the coin. It's, we can't allow ourselves to, to deviate to the side that we're more comfortable with. We have to embrace the whole gospel. And that means we have to wrestle with both sides where one of us might be more inclined to one area or the other. We have to deviate to the middle and lean on each other to get there. So we start with the wisdom of God. We start with Isaiah 55, 8, verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, and as my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your, your thoughts. So we acknowledge by, by when we investigate this and we pursue the Lord in this manner, we start by acknowledging He's God. We're not. We can only understand Him in part, not in full. We cannot put God into our comfortable theological box. We can't. We have to accept that there will be things that are beyond our understanding, but it's still of God. God has many ways of working when He empowers the Holy Spirit. We can see ways that He empowers the Holy Spirit just naturally. You look at Exodus and you see men being given talents and gifts and skills to work on the Ark of the Covenant, to embroider and work with the gold. That was done by the power of the Holy Spirit. We see others who would get the wisdom to counsel others, like in... <laughs> Uh, God's wisdom can also just be in a natural way. In Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, you see how Paul writes to Timothy and says, don't only drink some water, but also drink some wine. 
for the frequent stomach ailments and for your um, frequent, uh, for your stomach and your frequent ailments. That's just wisdom. There's almost nothing spiritual about it, but God does give wisdom. We can embrace the wisdom in the, of the natural that God gives us. There's also the supernatural, which goes beyond what we would teach, but still, it's, it's still Scripture. It doesn't seem our normal approach, but hey, it happened. Acts 19, 11 to, 11 to 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, I don't think we're in the habit of praying for handkerchiefs or letting handkerchiefs touch the apostles and sending them off to people so they can be healed. It's not our, it's not our practice, but it happened. We can't put God in the box. People were even coming to where they were walking so their shadows would fall upon them and they could receive some of the anointing of God. God does not work in a box, and we have to embrace it all. At the same time, God is a God of order. We can't deny that or reject that. 1 Corinthians 14 tells us, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. That's the truth intention. As crazy as it can be, God is still a God of order. And we have to find the balance between the two. So then it comes down to the testing. 1 John 4 tells us the following. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have come out into the world. Not everything we will see will be of God. I scribbled these notes. Just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's God. Just because it's not spiritual doesn't mean it's not God. <laughs> God is in both. And the spiritual realm is as real on both sides of the coin, on, on the evil Satan's side as it is on God's side. We can't just assume everything. An open door can just as easily be opened by Satan as by God. Not everything that is spiritual is God. Not everything that is non-spiritual is not God. Truth intention. We have to test things. So how do we do that? One of the ways is we look at the fruits of it. And fruits don't come instantly. You can't just go, I heard a word, there's no fruit, it wasn't God. I saw something happening on stage, there was no fruit, it wasn't God. It takes time. Look at your own life. Look at your own journey that you've come on. Look at where you were and where you are today. It wasn't instant. But it was fruitful. You have moved forward. So when in doubt, we look, we pay attention. We don't dismiss, but we wrestle and we test. And we do that together. We also judge our own hearts. Some of us might have sort of a more intense experience of the Holy Spirit. But then question yourself. You've seen people who react physically to the Holy Spirit. If you're one of those, check your heart. Check your intent. Do you have the same reaction in private as you do in public? Or are you putting on a show to be seen by others? We have to test our hearts. And we have to engage with ourselves to be sure about these things. We also have to be comfortable with the unconventional. As I said already, when we look at the scriptures, the Holy Spirit can be noisy. 
And my conservative background doesn't allow for that. I've had to adjust in many ways. But we see it to be part of who God is. We can also somehow see that the Holy Spirit can be visible, be imparted. The one key scripture I had for that, where we actually see it happening, is when Paul lay, sees the Holy Spirit poured out onto the Gentiles. Now, what makes us very significant is he came back and testified to the rest of his Jewish believers. And this is a critical moment in the church history where they were going to see is Christ for the Gentiles as well, or is it only for the Jews? This is a fundamental crossroads in the church. And because of Paul's testimony who said, and I saw the Holy Spirit being poured out upon them just as it was done unto us. His testimony of visually seeing something happening, what it is I don't understand or don't know, but there was a visual connection with there's the Spirit. It was tangible. And that testimony was enough to persuade the whole uh, Jewish community to say, Praise the Lord, for now salvation has come unto all people. So we can also accept that the Holy Spirit will be physically possible to be seen and engaged and be tasted and see the Lord is good. It is not just an emotional connection with the Holy Spirit, although He is our comforter and He is our provider. And it does show us and remind us of all things. There's something very powerful. And the Lion of Judah, not just the Lamb, there's something very powerful about the Holy Spirit on that equation as well. There's a reason why the people thought they were drunk in Acts 2. Ephesians 5, the same analogy is brought up. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Guys, it's going to be uncomfortable to allow the Holy Spirit free reign in the whole life. If the analogy is similarly with drunkenness, there's something very unique about this, that we have to allow the Spirit to move the way He wants to move. Personally, I can say that my first year in Josh Jen was difficult for me. <laughs> I think my wife can relate to it as well. We come from a church background where we never de denied the Holy, power of the Holy Spirit, but I can't say we experienced it either. So when coming into Josh Jen, it was more than one occasion that I had my back against the wall. <laughs> Highly uncomfortable experiencing and witnessing what's happening in the audience and in the group. But there were a couple of things that helped me in this process to embrace what was happening here. One, I got to know the people with whom it was happening. When you know people, you can trust their experiences. Their testimonies become true. It's not just a fiction story. It becomes a reality. I can't deny the testimony of somebody whom I know. I have to give it weight. And the people I got to know were genuine. And therefore, I had to genuinely accept their testimonies and their experiences. I could also acknowledge the fruit in their lives. This wasn't sensational with no, no depth. These people had walks with the Lord in a daily fashion that impacted all that they were doing. They were on the narrow path. And the fruit of that was evidence in their marriage, in, how they, in, their, in their raising the kids, in their workplace, in the relationship with me. It was evident. The fruits were evident. And also, very importantly, I could not deny what I saw based on biblical grounds. As much as I searched the scripture to justify why I didn't have to come back, I couldn't. What I saw was biblical. Biblical. 
even though it wasn't comfortable, even though it wasn't familiar, it was biblical. And bit by bit, those things continue to persuade me to stay. And I am the richer for it, to have engaged with what I saw and embraced all that God has for us. I'll give you one story that for me was one of the clinching moments. We had a prophetic evening where people received prophetic words. And there was a couple there, and she must have been eight months pregnant. And they were called forward, and hands were laid on, and they received many prophetic words. And it was really beautiful what we heard. But you could see him, the husband, physically under the weight of the Spirit. He was shaking, and his leaves were wobbling, and he just, he wasn't coping. He was all he could to stand and stay standing to receive the prophetic words. Afterwards, he walked back to his chair with the wobbly feet and legs that he had. But the beauty of it is he was trying to support his, his eight-month pregnant wife, trying to encourage and help her to her seat with his legs bouncing all over the place. I think he did more harm than good, but he was trying the best to love his wife and just help her to her seat. He was hopeless. <laughs> he couldn't do it. Ingenuineness, is that something you fake? Is that something you pretend? Trying to love your wife when your knees don't do it. And having known them, I could just see the genuineness of what the Spirit was doing in their lives and in their hearts and in Him personally. And those experiences helped me to embrace and expect the same. Can I have Acts 2.17 on there? So after this episode of, of the, the Holy Spirit being poured out on disciples on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and he quoted from Joel. He read these words. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour my Spirit on all flesh. Can we just hear that again? On all flesh. Thankfully that includes each and every one of you, yeah. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and or smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's verse 22, which I didn't give, sorry. Oh, 21. The Spirit is there ultimately to bring God glory. Anything that is not doing that is not bringing glory to God and is not the Spirit. But we need to acknowledge that this is a, an experience for all of us. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be your experience every single time. But I will say it should be an experience that we all participate in from time to time. In the same way that we are called to worship in all God's ways, sometimes kneeling, sometimes lifting our hands, sometimes prostrate before the Lord, sometimes jumping with joy. Our worship experience should encompass all of what God expects of us, not just what we're comfortable with, so should our experience with the Holy Spirit encompass all that God has for us, not just the areas that we are comfortable with. And ultimately, the outpouring, outworking of this will be the following. 1 Corinthians 14. 
can I have the next one, Ulrich? First Corinthians 14. Thank you. Uh, sorry, I didn't give it to you. My mistake. I'll read it from you. So 1 Corinthians 14 says the following. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secret of his hearts are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Will an outsider see that God is really among us? There are so many ways that they will, but this is absolutely one of the ways that they will, that should also be part of a whole experience of the full gospel. We need it all. And I want to encourage us to embrace it all. That we need to, from, depending on where we are comfortable with, we need to make the shift. As I did when I first joined the church, I had to be, make the shift from my conservative nature and to allow more of the Holy Spirit to act and to react and process me and move me. I had to become less skeptical, skeptical of what I saw in others. My first response is when someone says, praise the Lord, my shoulders healed is, yeah, salvel. <laughs> I know myself how quickly I can sort of feel my shoulders better. My first response when people's ankles, you know, the cast comes off and they can work was, Yes, well, I've had cars so many times. I know I can walk. <laughs> it just hurts a little bit longer. And I, I was always skeptical. But now I'm going to stop and say, but was it God? Can I give God the glory and not be skeptical in my nature because it's not what I'm comfortable with? And at the same time, I need to balance that with the other side. Again, not everything that happens in this world is from God on the spiritual sense. There are other spirits at work here. And we don't have to look for the devil around every corner but we can't deny that he is around himself. So we have to test and walk it out together with others. That's why we do it in community. We walk together, loving one another and sharing our experience with each other. If you've got doubts, go ask that person that's had an experience that you don't understand. Ask them, hey, what was that? What, why are you crunching like that? What, what, what's your experience? Tell me more about that. And you will learn and see and see the genuineness of their hearts. And you will grow yourself. And we can pray for one another for the more of the Holy Spirit and enjoy the journey and celebrate the victories. As we did, I think, two or three weeks ago when the Holy Spirit came and people spoke in tongues for the first time and had healings. Those are glorious moments to celebrate and endure. But ultimately, we don't seek the signs and wonders. We seek Him who gave them. We don't seek the Spirit. We seek He that the Spirit glorifies we look for that, because that is why we're here. Those are just means to get to the ultimate destination, which is our Heavenly Father. And to Him be all glory and praise forever and ever. So as I was speaking tonight, this is, not, this is just a hope to create fertile soil in our congregation, in our body, for what the Holy Spirit might want to do in the future. What that is, we don't know. Because <laughs> God is God, and we'll allow Him to be God in all His ways. But if we can be fertile soil, that when He arrives, He'll find a people that are willing to follow the way He wants to lead, boy, that's going to be a glorious journey with Him. And won't we ultimately, as a body, be blessed as He blesses us, and blesses others through us? I want to be part of that body. I want to be part of that journey 
with each and every one of you, that we may see His glory and give Him praise in all that we do.